0: Medical students and pre-meds are not putting up with this anymore. They're, They're just not putting up with people like me and saying, you know what? We don't want to go to medical school like you went to medical school. We want something different. We want to change the world. We want more global diversity. We're concerned about global warming. We want to be able to do stuff other than just see 40 patients a day for the rest of our life that's burning us out. So it's a competitive advantage and it's just a practical reality that if you're a medical school and you're not offering a product that a customer wants to buy, you're going to go out of business.
1: If you're thinking about a pivot into health entrepreneurship, you're in the right place. My very, very special guest today is going to be sharing five pillars of health entrepreneurship, whether you're a physician or any kind of health professional indeed, but also a patientpreneur, the groups that I like to work with who have some form of lived experience too. Dr. Alan Myers is president and co-founder of the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs, whose mission is to help their members get their ideas to patients, by providing education, resources, and networks. Basically, they connect dots so that the members can get busy creating things and have the fun that they can do there. Welcome to Tribe Talks here at The Entrepreneur's Doctor, where I'm here to help you scale and monetize both your health expertise, if you're a professional, or indeed your lived experience if you've been a patient. And the idea is to create a thriving online business, but specifically for those of us who don't want to risk our family, financial, or job security. We're not in that unique luxury of jumping headfirst into a startup, but we want to do things slowly, part-time. the whole goal at the end of this, and I think my guest today agrees with this, is we want to have the freedom to do what we love and what we're passionate about to help improve health, but also create a business that looks after us too. So if you are new here, welcome. Do check out the link below to learn more about my special guest today, as well as an important disclaimer.
0: I am Dr. Arlen Myers. Uh, as mentioned, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And I'm uh, a co-founding president and CEO of the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. And I thought I would take this opportunity to just present a few highlights about my thoughts concerning physician entrepreneurship. Um, and I think uh, the main take home that I want to uh, present to you is actually what is the whole purpose and what is the definition of entrepreneurship? Because I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about that. Probably the single biggest misunderstanding is that entrepreneurship is about creating a company only. And I'm trying to dispel that notion because, uh, again, the take home is there's lots and lots of ways to satisfy the definition. So what is the definition? And this is just my opinion and is sort of an aggregation of various people's thoughts. So my has five or six components to it. That's why I'm calling it the five pillars. So one is the pursuit of opportunity. So this is really uh, a bias to action and you certainly have to plan things. And there's a lot that goes into planning and executing an entrepreneurial endeavor, but fundamentally it's about doing, not planning. And at some point you're gonna have to sort of get it done. Um, So it really is more about execution Uh, We all know about the old saw that uh, it's really 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. So it sort of embodies that notion. So number one is the pursuit of opportunity. Number two is uh, it's done under volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous conditions, so-called VUCA conditions. And what that means is that you really can't predict the future. So you have to be able to create the future. Certainly, you take into consideration SWOT analysis, looking around corners, paying attention to what's going on in the world, et cetera, et cetera. But if fundamentally, you're going to have to have contingency plans and plan B, because again, as they say, no battle plan survives the first shot, and no business plan survives the first customer. You just never know how a customer or a stakeholder or a user, or a payer, or a patient is going to use your idea. So you're going to have to sort of adapt it. So number one, pursuit of opportunity. Number two, under HIPAA conditions. Number three, and probably the most important part is the goal of all this is to create user-defined or stakeholder-defined value. What you think is your about your idea is really irrelevant. The only thing that matters is is someone willing to use or pay for your product or service. And that depends on value and your value proposition. In other words, is there a product market fit? So number one, pursuit of opportunity. Number two, the conditions. Number three, user-defined value. The goal is to, produ- is to produce user-defined value. Number four is uh, uh, through the deployment of innovation, Now we've heard a lot about what is innovation and without belaboring the issue because we don't have time to discuss it, but the point is that there's a big difference between an idea, an invention or discovery, an improvement or an innovation. And again, that is determined by the user and by the market. It's it's not determined by the creator. And it takes a while to figure that out because Again, the notion or the mental model is that innovations, you know, just take any technology cell phone, nano, you name it. Anything that has eventually been labeled innovation um, was overestimated in the beginning and underestimated in the long term. So it takes a long time to figure out what really is, is felt to be and measured as an innovation. And again, it really has to do with the multiples of value that eventually that technology delivers when compared to the status quo or a competitive offering. And you can take anything in the history of the industrial revolution or iPhones or whatever you wanna point to, it takes a while for that to come into focus. And finally, you have to be able to execute all this using a, what I call a vast business model, which is viable, automatic, uh, scalable, and time-sensitive. Because if you don't have a viable business model, then basically you run out of money in the meter and the game is over. So, and there's a sense of urgency. So you only have a certain amount of time to do this. You only have a certain amount of money, resources, people, urgency, attention, engagement, the things that you need to get this thing over the goal line, um, or in, in the case of England into the, into the goal, uh, to, uh, uh, to make it successful. And the whole point of this is to achieve the quintuple aim in sick care. Now I call it sick care because in most countries, the vast majority of money that is spent, I don't care whether it's the UK, the United States, Singapore, Kenya, Ghana, whatever, the majority of the money is spent taking care of sick people, not keeping people healthy, and not doing uh, critical or complex disease management, and not doing public health, which we've been watching for the last three years. So that's the basic idea. So in summary, and again, the the quintuple aim is quality, cost, equitable access, experience, and waste. That is getting rid of uh, administrivia, getting rid of things that people shouldn't do. Um, And in the United States, incidentally, we're we're spending roughly $4 trillion to take care of approximately 325 million people. And we're lowest on the best healthcare system list from the OECD. Now, the irony of that is we're first in terms of Innovation ecosystems. So we sort of have to ask ourselves, arguably, if we're, we, meaning America, is so good at innovation, why are we so bad at sick? And, and that really begs the argument as to why we actually created the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. So, in review, number, so it's the pursuit of opportunity under VUCA conditions with the goal of creating user defined value through the deployment of innovation, using a vast business model to accomplish the aim. So I'm open to a conversation and uh, your thoughts.
1: Love it, absolutely love it. And I've been following your work for quite a few years. I remember reaching out to you quite a while ago, actually. And um, I have a couple of follow-up questions if I may, sure. uh, Alan. So the first one is, First of all, let us know more about the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. What is the the goal? What's the mission? As in, what's the problem that you're solving? Right. So the problem
0: that we're trying to solve, and I recently wrote an article on the creation story of SOAP, and I'm happy to pass that along. But for the sake of time, the bottom line is that the problem that we are trying to solve is, uh, or problems, are one, every person who's called a doctor that wears a white coat thinks they have a good idea. Number two, they may have a good idea, but as I indicated before, an idea is not a technology, it's not a product, it's not a business, it's not an innovation, it's an idea that just simply sticks in your head and it doesn't get anywhere. It goes down the shower. I mean, probably each of us have had ideas, three of them today, and they went down the shower and that was the end of it. So how do you translate the idea into something? And so number three, um, most of the ideas aren't really very good. And and even if they did know how to do something, which is the third problem, even if they had a good idea that had commercial or value-creating potential, most white coats, bioscientists, engineers, doctors, health professionals, they wouldn't know what to do with it. And the reason is the fourth problem we're trying to solve, which is because in your formal training, you don't learn how to do this. And what's more, you don't get selected to be in that formal training if you have an entrepreneurial mindset. You get selected because you have a clinical or a technical or a scientific mindset. So it creates this this dissonance. On the one hand, there's this innovation imperative we want you to be creative, but on the other hand, we're not gonna teach you how to do it. So that's why we created the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs, which is a global nonprofit, open biomedical and clinical innovation and entrepreneurship network. As you stated, our mission is to help our members get their ideas to patients or help somebody who's trying to get an idea to a patient. Um, and we provide education resources, networks, mentors, experience, peer-to-peer support and non-clinical career guidance. Actually, the big vision is to um, uh, close global health outcome disparities through the deployment of innovation. It's UN sustainable development goal number three. But our mission to accomplish that vision is to help people get their ideas to patients.
1: Alan, just a couple more follow-ups because I can't let you go. You've, you've come all this way now virtually, but still it's been a while since I've been wanting to speak with you.
0: Sure.
1: Um, so I like to talk about needle movers. You may have seen me post something about this recently on, on LinkedIn. And I ask quite a lot of people, what have, what's the one biggest needle mover that you've seen? And specifically, I mean, it could be about anything, but especially about the role of physicians getting into entrepreneurship. What's, What's the biggest needle mover that you've seen there in terms of something that a physician can do that no one else perhaps can do that has the biggest impact on innovation and entrepreneurship?
0: Well, I think, I mean, there's several obviously, but, and I'll preface this by saying that rules create ecosystems. Ecosystems create business models and business models either get in the way of or facilitate the development of innovation. So in a highly regulated industry, anywhere in the world, like sick care, and in our industry that um, is uh, by necessity, a uh, mission critical to being risk averse. So how do you balance that Ecosystem so that you create innovation without hurting patients. So, essentially, the challenge is how do you reconcile the ethos and ethics of medicine with the ethos and ethics of business? Now, I don't care where you practice medicine in the world, and you and I have been around the world looking at these things and participating. There are always private systems and public systems in one way, shape or form. In some countries more, in other countries less. In the UK, you have a very famous National Health Service, you know, created in 1948, but in my, the latest data I've seen is about 15 to 18% of your spend is in private healthcare. So people are under the misconception it's just all one big private system. There is no place that just has a a public system. Because docs on the ground will figure out a way to do something else to make some money if the public system is getting in their way. And we've seen that all over, and it happens in the United States. So if you're asking me what are, and I think there's probably two big ones. One is change the rules, And I say that health sick care transformation, that is transforming sick care to healthcare is most effectively done in hearing and legislative rooms, not examining ones. You have to change the rules, whether it's regulatory affairs, reimbursement, ecosystems, how physicians and healthcare professionals are treated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The second, I biggest needle mover, I think, is education. I think we need to radically reform medical education around the world. And I I mean, all sorts of professional schools, nursing, pharmacy, dentistry, public health, medical schools, graduate schools, bioscience, all that. And I'm involved in several initiatives where we're trying to do exactly
1: that. Oh, you, you have to elaborate now. Wow. What would that, what would good look like? Well, I'm involved with an an organization,
0: it's it's actually a for-profit company, it's called MI10, and we're an artificial intelligence, healthcare strategy, and education consultancy. So one of the things that we do is work with medical schools around the the world to reform medical education, and again, there's a lot to this, but the headline is We are, the problem we're trying to solve is that doctors around the world are not being trained, A, to win the fourth industrial revolution, and B, to serve their communities with the tools that are emerging. So that's what we're doing. We've basically have 10 motifs, including innovation and entrepreneurship, including artificial intelligence, data literacy, machine learning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and there's a whole list of others. So those I think are the fundamental notions. And that means we have to rethink how we accept medical students. We have to rethink how we train and educate them, how we hand them off to graduate medical education programs, how we make them equitably accessible, and how we provide them with the knowledge, skills, abilities, and competencies to win the fourth industrial
1: revolution. If you were going to solve or create the next startup, what problem would you solve? But I kind of want to urge you to bring it into the world of medical education, if, if you may. What problem would you have right. to solve?
0: Well, I think the big, you know, the biggest problem, as I alluded to before, is changing sick care into healthcare. Um, we, I mean, the, the global demand for medical services is infinite. The supply of resources is defined. So the issue is how do we optimize existing resources, which are only going to get smaller, in my opinion, and the demands are going to get bigger. So, so how do we reconcile that? It's a supply and demand function. And I think one way to do it, not the only way, but one way to do it is through the deployment of innovation, as I just discussed. Now. The problem that you're alluding to is why is should we be turfing the business of medicine, entrepreneurship, and innovation or value-creating schools to business schools, which we're doing now? And in my view, and again, another long conversation, I think most MD-MBA programs, and incidentally I helped create one at the University of Colorado, should be eliminated. The idea is that the business of medicine should be taught in medical schools, not in business schools. It's just part and parcel of what we do. Now, how do you do that? And, and in our work with MI10, we've probably we've run into several recurrent themes. And, and these are part solutions. One is medical schools have to, create graduates that can pass tests. It's just a fact of life. You have to take part one, part two, part three, board exams, whatever. So those accreditation criteria are not gonna change in the foreseeable future. So the reality is the students have to pass the test to be a doctor in this case, or a nurse, or just substitute the profession. That's a reality. Number two, the questions that are asked usually have to do with basic science and clinical studies. They don't have to do with entrepreneurship. They don't have to do with AI. They don't have to do with system science. So it's going to take a while for those accreditation organizations to require competencies in those subjects. But we should start laying the groundwork for that now. So the question is, how do you, again, balance accreditation requirements with the future of medicine and what people need to know to address the needs of the communities. And finally, where are we gonna find the people to teach this stuff? How do we train the trainers? How do we recruit medical students that have had previous life experience in this stuff? So how do we create a curriculum back? that? How do and the most frequent issue is, Arlen, I get what you're saying, But we only have a limited time to teach these students, and there's just an information explosion. So, how do we cram more stuff into the curriculum? Our answer is you don't. And that's an answer to your question. These topics need to be integrated, not replace what is presently being taught in medical school. Now, you could argue. You know, the typical argument is, when's the last time you used the Krebs cycle to take care of somebody with depression? Well, you didn't. So we really need to sort but it's an accreditation requirement. You have to know the answer to that question in part one of the test. So let's integrate these subjects into the basic science subjects and the clinical subjects. and, And they're infinite. If you're on ophthalmology, you should understand something about artificial intelligence and retinal scanning to create clinical decision support and computer mapping to detect diabetic retinopathy. You can integrate that into the clinical curriculum. Likewise, you can do the same thing in anatomy, using holograms, using virtual reality creating ed tech companies. There's a million different ways to do this. And we're just gonna to have to do it gradually, but little by little, we'll see, we're seeing some cracks in the armor. And uh, and, and finally, medical students and pre, pre-meds are not putting up with this anymore. They're They're just not putting up with people like me and saying, you know what? We don't wanna to go to medical school like you went to medical school. We want something different. We wanna change the world. We want more global diversity. We're concerned about global warming. We wanna be able to do stuff other than just see 40 patients a day for the rest of our life that's burning us out. So it's a competitive advantage. And it's just a practical reality that if you're a medical school and you're not offering a product that a customer wants to buy, you're gonna go out of business.